Well, good morning. If you are with the children's ministry, you are excused. For the rest of us, uh, we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will miraculously bring you a Bible. We're going to be looking at all of chapter 20 in the Gospel of John. When you think about it, life is one big argument. You wake up in the morning, the the alarm goes off, and an argument begins to play in your head, right? You begin to think, will I hit the snooze and go back to sleep, or will I go out on that run? Right? And, And there's different arguments, right? And often, if you're anything like me, the argument that's loudest is hit that snooze button. You deserve it. Go back to bed. And then for the rest of the day, right, there's just argument after argument. You go to school or you go to work and you're constantly making arguments all throughout the day. Why you should have received a better grade on that paper. Why you should get more pay from your boss. Argument after argument after argument. Parents, you come to dinner and you make an argument to your children why they should eat their vegetables when you really don't want to eat those vegetables, right? Life is one big argument. My my daughter continually is having an argument with my wife and I about why she should get a phone. She keeps making the same argument over and over again. Over time, that argument has become more sophisticated, but we still reject her argument. An argument is just simply a way of trying to use logic or reason, evidence, emotions, try to stir the affections of someone in order to get a point across to someone and something. Easter, if you didn't know it, Easter is one big argument. It's one big argument. Easter is an argument for something and someone. If you go down to chapter 20, Gospel of John, the last verse, the last two verses, the last two verses in the Gospel of John tell us what John has been doing. John has been been spending 19 chapters making an argument. This is his argument. This is what he's seeking to persuade us in relation to. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Evidently, we don't need to know them. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John, all throughout the Gospel of John, is making an argument. He's making a demand. He's sort of pushing us into a corner and asking us, Not a rhetorical question, but an absolutely important and vital question. What do you think about Jesus? Who do you think he is? And will you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God? That's the question of Easter. It's the argument that John has been building towards. And the question for us is, what do we do with it? Will we believe it? Will his argument, has his argument, 
persuaded you that Jesus really is who he says he is. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at John's kind of climactic argument for who Jesus is, which is nothing less than the resurrection itself. So I always kind of give you a big idea that we're going to work our way through in three movements. And it's simply this. Belief in the resurrection turns wander to wonder. I'm probably going to mess that one up. That one's going to be a hard one. Belief in the resurrection turns wander to wonder, panic into peace, doubters into declarers. That's what we're going to look at today. So turn with me to John chapter 20. We're going to look at the first 18 verses. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outrun Peter and reached the tomb first. That's a humble brag, right? Verse five. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face of cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in the place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So scene one, sort of, Act one, belief in the resurrection turns wander to wonder. So at the end of chapter 19, and we celebrated this on Friday, on Good Friday, Jesus is dead. Good and dead. They made sure of it. The religious leaders demanded it. Pilate executed it. Soldiers oversaw it. Joseph of Arimathea knew it. Society celebrated it. Jesus is dead. And they take him to a tomb. That's how chapter 19 ends. And so Mary goes to the tomb early, early one morning, a few days later, and she's with other women, the other gospels tell us. And she 
realizes when she arrives early in the morning that the rock, the, the rock that was a door protecting the body of Jesus, is rolled away. She looks inside. Her mind, I'm guessing, is just racing. Like, what does this all mean? Jesus is dead. She's been wandering around for a few days. And she looks in, and the body of Jesus is gone. And you can imagine what she jumped to. You can imagine the, the, the sort of logic that she was using in that moment. Someone has taken Jesus. Someone has taken him and desecrated the body of Jesus. And so she's distraught. Right? Multiple times it talks about her weeping. She's saddened. So Mary runs to get to the disciples, right? She, she needs to sort of get to the bottom of this. And so she finds Peter, she finds John, and then she tells them, the body of Jesus is gone. You, you got to come. You got to go check this out. You got to, we got to figure out where the body is. So they eventually come. John and Peter run. They arrive. John kind of goes in first. He sees something that looks interesting. Not just was Jesus not there, but there was some interesting details that made John, uh, that sort of piqued John's curiosity. And then Peter comes in. And they walk in, and they don't find Jesus' body. But the detail is really interesting. Verse 8, what they did see, the details, something really, really curious, made them believe that this was not robbery. This is resurrection. So what do they see? Well, it explains that they saw linen, cloth. I just love how the details are like Columbo style right there. Like, why did they walk in, not see the resurrection, or not see the body of Jesus, and instantly go to resurrection? Cloth. Just think about this. They walk in and they see the burial cloth that was on Jesus, on his face, on his body, and they see it there, just laid out. And they instantly conclude, no robber would do this. Makes no sense. Because if, if someone is trying to take the body of Jesus, they just scoop up the body, linen and all, take them out. Like, no one would unwrap the body with all the, the, the smell and the stench and take the time to do that, even with a lookout, and then take the body and fold up the linen. No one would do that, right? That makes no sense. And so John and Peter are looking at this linen, the empty tomb, and they come to the inevitable conclusion, Jesus is risen. They were wandering about, and now they're just filled with wonder, and they leave. They sort of exit the scene, don't they? Verse 10. They go home. They're going to show up again in verse 19. Mary's a different story. Mary's been wandering about for a while. Mary, among all people, has been changed by Jesus. I mean, they all have, but, but, but Mary has been changed. She's been healed. She's been loved. She's been cared for. She was given a purpose as a disciple of Jesus. And it's all gone. And she's wondering, what, what, what do I do now? What's my purpose? How do I go on living? I had, it, I had this amazing, abundant life when I was following Jesus, and now he's gone. He's dead. I don't even know where his body is. I'm a laughing stock of society. She's just wandering. And so she's 
wandering and weeping. It's easy to sort of empathize with Mary, isn't it? She is between a rock and a hard place. You can laugh. But then just as she's weeping, kind of wandering about, an angel speaks, verse 12. She peers in there and there's two angels in white and they ask her, verse 13, they're like, why are you crying? Which is, in one sense, a weird question. She says, well, someone has taken Jesus. And then, as she's saying this, you can just see her in the tomb, talking with these two angels, and then instantly, she realizes there's another presence. There's another man. And she has no idea who it is. I mean, I don't know if it's just really dark, and, you know, she had really bad eyesight and forgot her glasses. I have no idea, but she can't see. She has no idea who this person is. Maybe her just mind couldn't catch up to what she was seeing. But regardless of the reason, she has no idea who it is. She assumes it's the gardener. And so so when this man says, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Who are you seeking? Mary's like, assuming that this is the gardener, saying like, well, do you know where Jesus is? Did you take the body of Jesus? Can you tell me where he is so that I can properly take him back to his tomb? And then this man says one word, and that one word was enough to undo Mary, right? He just calls her by her name, Mary. And instantly, right? Instantly, though she couldn't see, she could hear. Like, that's the power of voices, right? It's the power of voices. You know, infants probably don't have the best eyesight, but they can hear their mother, right? And the same way, here we have Mary, who hears the word of Jesus calling out to her, and instantly she knows who it is. And so it says that she just grabs Jesus, right? She's clinging on to Jesus, and Jesus is like, okay, just Mary, back, back away a little bit, right? And basically he's not like chiding her. He's not like, stop hugging me, like, like, like get off me, right? Stop being clinging or something. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to be here for, for, for a minute, okay? There's going to be time to do all this. We got things to do. I've got appearances to make. And you've got a mission and a purpose. So he says, you got to go. You you got to go. And you got to go tell people that you actually saw me. Now, that's how verse, uh, verse 18 ends. She, I'm guessing, has so many questions. I mean, how many questions do you think Mary has at this moment? I I could list hundreds that I'm guessing Mary has. But even as she's wondering all about Jesus, what does this all mean? Why is he sending me on this mission to go tell the other disciples? What What does this mean for me and my life and my purpose? She has all of this wonder. Verse 18. Mary wins. Even though she couldn't figure out everything, she went. Wonder means that you don't have to figure everything out in life. But you can still follow God. I mean, there there are so many things I wonder about. 
This past week, uh, my, my family went to a zoo, and we saw the ugliest animal I think I've ever seen in my entire life. It's called a naked mole rat. And we stared at this thing and going like, and I just, I literally wondered, I might have even wondered out loud, God, is this some cruel sense of humor? Like, why in the world would you create such an ugly animal? Like, we, we all have these things that we wonder about. We wonder about things when we're suffering. We, we wonder why, why, we, why we went through this experience or that experience. We, we wonder about what we should do next year, what job to take, what school to go to. There are all these sorts of things that we wonder about, and sometimes we can get paralyzed because of our wonder. I don't know what to do. I can't explain it. And I think the interesting thing about Easter, about the resurrection, is we are meant, first and foremost, to wonder about it. I mean, there is a lot of evidence for the resurrection. Historical evidence. Here we have eyewitness accounts, and we have lots of eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. We have loads of reasons to believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet, I think we are in a generation that is bored with wonder. We just, we would never say we're, we're just materialistic, and yet, in one sense, we just get bored with the resurrection and just think, I know, he rose from the grave. Great. Moving about. Let's go get and hide some eggs or whatever. We're not enchanted by the whole idea of and the whole reality that Jesus rose from the grave because we spend all our time trying to, to make sense of it. We make all our time trying to argue for it, and yet, there's a sense in which we're just supposed to step back and wonder about it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have no idea how to explain a sunset. No idea. I just know that I really like them and they're really pretty. Like, I don't understand how a tiny seed can become a tree and then I can take an apple and eat it. Like, I have no idea how it all works. I just know I really like apples and they taste really good. Like, there are so many things I wonder about that I can't explain fully, but I just know I love them, and they're wonderful, and they're a great way to experience these various realities, and that is, in some sense, the power of the resurrection. Mary had so many questions, and yet, even in her wonder, she wasn't prone to wander. Her wonder led her to worship. Act one, scene one. Mary, Peter, John go from wandering about to wonder. But then we have act two, scene two, from panic to peace. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked. uh, Sorry, I'll read that again. On uh, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. 
If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We'll stop there. So, verse 19 shifts, and now it's evening. The disciples are gathered in a home, but notice a small detail. The doors are locked, right? They turned on their ADT, they've got their security alarm, and they are afraid, our text tells us. With good reason. They're not afraid of robbers, in one sense, they're afraid of repercussions, right? They they were following Jesus. Jesus is dead. Maybe the religious leaders are going to come after them. And so they lock their doors, they turn the lights down, they put down the curtains, and they gather around quietly trying to figure out what the game plan is. Fear. It's a survival technique, isn't it? And although we sort of, fear always comes like, it's sort of experienced in our mind, fear actually has a a physical manifestation, right? So, So as soon as you recognize a fear, we know that our heart starts racing, blood starts pumping, and actually what eventually happens is blood starts moving from our heart into our extremities because our body is getting ready to fight or flight. That's what fear does. And fear is a good thing, right? We should be afraid of sharks. They are terrifying. And if you're swimming in the ocean and you see a shark, praise God that all of a sudden the adrenaline keeps pumping because you got to fight off that shark. Fear is a good thing. But fear can also paralyze us such that we're like, we'll never go in the ocean. And there's some of you, there's some of you out there that are like, I'll never go in the ocean because of the possibility of getting bitten by a shark. You're missing out. But that's what fear can do. Fear can not only kind of help us in moments, but fear can make us paralyzed. Fear can just make us do exactly what was going on in the disciples. Turn, on the, turn off the lights, hunker down, lock the doors. We hide. We shelter. And that's the story we have here. In their fear, in their sort of panic, they lock the doors, they're hiding. It's a scary world, and they've got to survive. And then all throughout the text, all throughout the story, Jesus has been telling the disciples, your life is not just one of survival. That's not your purpose. You're meant to thrive. You've got this wonderful, amazing life. You've got this mission that I'm going to send you on. And they're just cloistered together, locking the doors, not knowing what to do. And so Jesus shows up, uninvited. You ever had those people? You have a party and someone who was not invited shows up? It's Jesus. He shows up, verse 19, he crashes the party and he declares peace. Do you guys see that twice? Twice he declares peace be with you. Now, I think there's some ambiguity in what Jesus is saying because he, he is most assuredly, you know, saying like, hey, don't be afraid. I know you're probably shocked, probably never experienced someone being risen from the grave. It's going to be okay. Here's my hand. Here's my side. It's me, right? So I'm guessing there's that. He is, in one sense, trying to decrease their terror of the moment. But, but there's more than this. There's a double meaning here. He is not only saying, peace, be, be at peace, but he's also saying, I am the prince of peace. I am he who because of my death and now because of my resurrection, I am the author of peace. 
in their fears, in your fears, whatever those fears are, Christ comes and says, I am the author of peace. True, final peace. Existential peace, what happens when I die? And the various fears we have every day, what happens when I suffer? Christ comes, and in one sense, the first time after his resurrection, he announces the comfort of peace. And and we know the message of what this peace is all about, because in verse 13, he talks about this idea of forgiveness. That is the offer of peace that Jesus gives on Good Friday and Easter. It's the offer of forgiveness. That you, in light of your sin, in light of your brokenness, you can be forgiven by God, through Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. It's the comfort of the peace that Jesus offers to the world, that you can be forgiven from God. But notice that's not all. Jesus then tells them that he's not only going to give them peace, he transfers his purpose to them. Did you see that in verse 21? He says, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus came, it says, to testify to the truth. And now he's saying, I have finished testifying to the truth. Now you take my truth, and now you go testify to it. Jesus' mission, his purpose, has now been delegated to these disciples. It's been delegated to the church. And you might go, well, how in the world is Jesus going to take these panicked, these little fearful Freddies, this, this cloistered, this... These anxious men and women, how is he going to take them and allow them to go live out on this mission to declare the truth that Jesus has died and rose again? How is he going to do this? He breathes on them the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll be completely honest. This is the hardest part of this text, this chapter. Like, what is, what, what in the world is going on? Because all along he's like, you got to wait, you got to wait until Pentecost, and then that's when the Spirit is going to be poured out. So what is going on here? Here's my best way of explaining it. Twofold. John constantly is doing this, but let me first give you just an everyday illustration, and then I'll give you John's biblical illustration of what I think is going on here. So uh, I remember it was a couple years ago, I got an advanced copy of a book. Okay? You couldn't get it. The public couldn't get it. Only a few of us got it. And I had it. It says on the front page, you cannot buy this, like give this away. This is just for you. This is an advanced copy of this book. So I got this book and I got to read this book. It was the real deal. It was the book. The book just wasn't ready. So it was a book for me and a few of us, but someday that book was going to go out to the public. John does this, right? He, he continually has, has been playing with this whole idea. So, so he turns water into wine, and a few people experience it. But that symbolizes, is a sign of that future experience for all people who can experience the banquet that the new covenant is going to be poured out in Christ's blood. Or just think about Jesus. He washes a couple people's feet in the upper room. I wasn't there. You weren't there. He washed only a few people's feet. But that is a picture of a greater washing that Christ is going to do for the world. 
John keeps doing this. He, he, he gives people a taste, an appetizer of something that is going to be offered to the world. And so that, I think, is what's going on here. He says, I'm going to send you on. You've got the message. Christ, de- death, and resurrection. You got, you got the message. You've got the truth. Now, here's the mission. Go testify to that truth. And you go, I don't know how to do it. I don't have the power to do it. And he says, the spirit is the empowerment in order to accomplish that. And so he breathes on them. He gives them the appetizer of that greater reality that will be poured out at Pentecost. They have peace. Now they are to declare peace by the person of peace, the spirit of Jesus himself, which is the Holy Spirit. They've been forgiven. Now they are to live on mission and to offer the forgiveness of Christ through Jesus. That's their mission. And so basically what Jesus is saying is, now that he's alive, we don't live in the age of security alarms anymore. Think metaphorically. This is not the age of locked doors. That's not what they should be doing. They should be going out. They have a purpose. They have a message, and they need to declare that message. They have a They have the person of Christ. Now they are to preach the resurrected Christ. That is their job. Not cloister, not to say, oh, we're we're the victims and we're the persecuted and woe is me. Jesus is like, it's not the time for that. It's not the age of locked doors. It's the age of getting out of our houses and declaring and preaching and telling people about the resurrected Lord. And it's our story too, isn't it? There is, in the midst of our fears about being rejected, not being accepted, not being part of the cool group, there is a temptation, just like the disciples, to metaphorically speaking, lock our doors. I've been wounded once, not going to do it again. There's too much I could lose. Why in the world would I link arms with other Christians to declare that Christ is risen? Why else would I ostracize myself intentionally in a society that is not in favor of Christianity, why would I do any of this? What advantage is it for me? Why not I just keep this religion private? I mean, our world loves a private religion. No problem with private religion. No problem with a religion that lives in a locked house. Our world, like every world, hates hates religion when it goes public when it goes from the privacy of our own homes out into the neighborhood. So what does this mean for us? I think what this means for us, most tangibly, most simply, is that we need to go public with our faith. Just as the disciples were about to go public with theirs. And this might mean many things. It might mean actually getting baptized. That's what baptism is. It's a public declaration that you are with Jesus. It's a putting on of the team jersey saying, I'm with Jesus. I'm on Jesus's team. It also just might mean walking out of your house to your neighbors, making friends with them intentionally, purposely, attempting to share with them who the Prince of Peace is. It might be practicing hospitality with a coworker. It also means doing this corporately as a church. It means together, as a church, thinking through how we can creatively connect the fears in our city, the fears in our community, and match it 
with the comfort of the gospel and how you do that creatively and strategically. Look at how Jesus takes these panicked men and women. He takes them. He launches them out in public ministry to preach the gospel. And the, the language is in verse 20. It says that when they saw Jesus, they were glad. There is nothing, there is nothing like living on, living in the purpose, living on the mission of God. I, I was talking with someone on Good Friday and they were telling me about how they connected with a coworker and, and got to tell them about what Good Friday was and they were beaming. Gladness comes as we live out the purpose of Christ to connect more and more people, men and women, to the person of peace, Jesus Christ. That's act two. Jesus, by the power of the resurrection, turns panicked people and unleashes them to be ambassadors of peace. But there's one more act. Look at verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers in his, the mark of the nails and place my hands into his side, I will never leave. Eight days later, his disciples were again, were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands and put your hands and place them in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord, and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So enter Thomas. He gets a bad name, but Thomas is all of us, all right? Thomas accidentally didn't get the invitation to hang out with the other disciples in the home. And now uh, he's like, they're telling him like, we saw Jesus. It's amazing. We saw him. We saw his hands. We saw his feet. And Thomas is like, seeing is believing. I didn't see him. There's no way. And so he says, basically, I will not believe in Jesus until I get to touch and feel him until I'm in his presence. For Thomas, seeing is believing. Thomas needs evidence, doesn't he? Right? He, he, he's a skeptic. He's not willing to risk his life, his reputation, on a hoax. And I love how it says, he, he articulates this, I need evidence. I must see him. I must feel him. I must be in Jesus' presence. And it says, eight days later, for eight days, Thomas is sweating it out. And then he's in the house. Jesus again crashes the party, uninvited. And he walks up and says, Thomas, the very thing that you need, I will give to you. Go ahead. Touch my hands, touch my side. The very evidence Thomas needs, Jesus affords to Thomas. And at that, Thomas 
announces. He goes from doubter to declare. He declares amazingly this great statement of faith. He says, my Lord and my God. And I love because he doesn't just say, you are God, you are Lord. I mean, that, that'd be a fine declaration, but look at the pronoun. You, you just see the, how personal this is. He has individually declared who Jesus is. He is my Lord. He is my God. This is what John's been pushing us to this entire gospel account. He's been pushing us into a corner because he wants to ask us an extremely personal question. He's been testifying to who Jesus is in written form. And Thomas is an app illustration and example of what John is attempting to do. But there's one problem, one big problem. See, as, we, as we've gone through this, it's really, really clear. Peter and John saw, saw something in the empty tomb, and they believed. We see this in verse 8. Seeing, believing, verse 8. Mary sees the risen Jesus and believes, verse 16. The disciples saw Jesus and believed, verse 20. Thomas sees the risen Christ and believes, verse 28. This entire thing is moving. They see Jesus, they believe. They see, they believe. They see, they believe. Problem. I'm assuming none of you have a flux capacitor from Doc Brown. You can't go back in time to actually be there. None of you have seen Jesus. If seeing is believing, we got a big problem on our hands, don't we? So what do we do? Well, John is making this argument that the eye is not the window into the soul. Actually, the ear is. The ear is. So Thomas believes in Jesus in a subtle rebuke, but he's talking to us now. He says this, verse 29, have you believed because you have just seen me? Right? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, well, sort of, yes. And then he says, well, blessed are those who do not see me, who have not seen me, and yet they still believe. We are not in the age of eyesight. We are not in the age of seeing. We are in the age of the ear. You ever wondered why I get up here and I speak words that you can then hear? because we're in the age of hearing. It's why we don't show a movie. It's why we don't do skits in that sense. We are in the age of hearing, and that method, preaching, is the perfect uh, vehicle to communicate the message. This is what Paul would later write in Romans. He says, For the scriptures say, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is the gospel. Whether Jew or Gentile, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. And then the question is, well, how are you to call on the name of the Lord? Romans says, verse 14 of chapter 10. How then will they call on the name of the Lord? How will, will they call on him whom they have believed? How are they to believe in him who they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? These are all just rhetorical questions. The, the, the answer to all of them is, we got to declare this. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So faith 
comes through, not eyesight, faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. One day we will be in the age of sin. We will be with God in his presence, seeing him face to face, right? 1 Corinthians 13 talks about that. What we see dimly, we will see face to face. One day we will be in the age of sight, but not yet. Now we're in the the age of hearing, where the words of this book, the words of the apostles, the words of the original testimony has come to us throughout the annals of time, to us right now. And it makes no sense for us to be here to gather if you didn't believe. You don't have to figure out everything. There are lots of things that I'm still yet to figure out. But John is asking a very personal, a very specific, a very personal question to us all. Do you believe? Will you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? Do you believe that you can be forgiven? Do you believe that in Christ you can have life like you've never dreamed it? Do you believe that in Christ you have the Prince of Peace? Do you believe that Christ will come back and raise you from the grave so that you can be in his presence in paradise permanently. Do you believe? Can you say, like Thomas, Christ is my God, my Lord? Life is one big big argument. I lose arguments all the time. All the time. I'm constantly trying to convince my wife that we shouldn't redo our kitchen, but we should get a hot tub. I keep losing that argument. I could list them. I lose arguments all the time. This is not an argument I want to lose. Do you believe? John 20 ends with one more thing that I want to just point out for you to just kind of linger as we leave. Let this kind of linger in your minds as you experience family and friends and good fellowship and good food. It says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed. It's a beatitude. John 20 ends with the beatitude. An imparting of a blessing. If you believe this, you are presently blessed. Blessed is he who might not have a lot of wealth. Blessed is he who might not have it all figured out. But this I can assure you, that if you believe John's argument, you are, you will be now and forevermore blessed. May that sing and reign and ring in your hearts all throughout today. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we know that there are many things that we presently wonder about, but one of the things we don't have to wonder about is if you love us. You have decisively communicated your love, displayed your love when you died on a cross and when, when you rose Christ from the grave. 
Lord, we, we pray that you would deepen our faith, deepen our resolve to not only believe that Jesus is the Christ, but realize that we are here presently in our community, breathing so that we can live on that mission to declare purposely the point of life, which is nothing short of enjoying you, enjoying you and glorifying you forever. So help us to do that more effectively. Help us to do that more faithfully. Help us to do that not only for our world, but for our gladness as well. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.